Welcome back to Your 1230, the only podcast where our guests tell their story with the help of 12 questions in just 30 minutes. Today, we are really excited to be speaking with J.V. Hilliard. J.V. is born of steel, fire, and black wind. As J.V. Hilliard was raised as a Highlander in the foothills of a once great mountain chain on the confluence of three mighty rivers that forgot his realm's wealth wealth and power for generations. His father, a peasant twerg, toiled away in industries of honest labor and instilled in him a work ethic that would shape his destiny. His mother, a local healer, cared for her elders and his warrior uncle, who helped to raise him during his formative years. His genius brother, whose wizardly prowess allowed him to master the art of the abacus and his own quill, trained him for the battles on fields of green and sheets of ice. Hilliard's earliest education took place in his warrior uncle's tower, where he learned his first words. His uncle helped him to learn the basics of life, and most importantly, creative writing. Hilliard's training and education readied him to lift a quill that would scribe the tale of the realm of Warminster. Filled with brave knights, harrowing adventure, and legendary struggles, he lives in the city of silver cups, hippocycloids, and golden triangles with his wife, a ranger of the diamond. They built their castle not far into the countryside, guarded by his own two horsehounds, Thor and McCloyd, and resides there to this day. JV, welcome. We are really excited to speak with you. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. I'm glad you enjoyed the bio. I enjoyed it. I uh, definitely made at least uh, seven or eight mistakes there. So feel free to correct me whenever I uh, mispronounced, read incorrectly, or just could not comprehend. Uh, I just, I love when we first talked that um, you kind of offhand mentioned that everything written in there and everything in your books lines up uh, with something uh, factual or that it is kind of like, a, I, to me, it was like a math formula that I'm saying this, it corresponds in in the the book or in real life one to one, which I just absolutely loved. Uh, so my my first question there is as I kind of go over the bio and talk about the books, how did you discover that creative writing was a talent of yours and something that you wanted to do professionally and have a uh, kind of living with? Well, it started in the fourth grade. I my uh, English teacher had left on a medical sabbatical for the last I would say six weeks of our uh, our year. And uh, his permanent substitute replacement came in and was somehow given permission uh, to read us The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings uh, by our principal. And that was our English class for like the last month or so. Uh, And I fell in love with it right away. And I went home. And as you could tell by my bio, my uncle was paralyzed in the war and my mom was his nurse. Um, And so he was very limited in what he could do. He was a quadriplegic. And so, you know, escapism for him came in the form of writing. You know, and he wrote stories and serials for Pulp Fiction and magazines at the time and things like that. But he was also willing to help uh, start my career as a dungeon master. So, you know, one of the things he could do was, again, his own form of escapism was he introduced me to the game of Dungeons and Dragons. You know, and not only what did I start reading The Hobbit and other books like that, I got introduced to the game and it was off to the races after that. I just I found a passion for all sorts of fantasy, epic fantasy, high fantasy, sword and sorcery, fantasy adventure, you name it. I just loved it. I couldn't get enough of it and ended up, you know, working at a bookstore and then a library going through high school and college. And, uh, you know, I can always see it on the horizon. And so he got me started, you know, at home and Mr. McKinley got me started in the classroom. So it was 
you know, one one in one a. Uh, but I'll give I'll give the nod to my uncle. It was really him. That's that's such a good story, and I, I love the creative piece of uh, you know nine year old, nine ten year old in fourth grade where uh, kids are are still creative and they're they are learning. And you even reference it that somehow uh, you were allowed to be read The Hobbit as part of your curriculum. When we we think about it now, that it's like no, we need to kind of steer these kids more to traditional education and away from uh, their creative side. So that's that was lucky, and then to have uh, your uncle help you. Uh, flush those talents and, and uh, interest out is fantastic. Uh, I'm going to out myself now as I, I have never been myself, someone who has uh, spent much time in a science fiction fantasy realm. I'm not even sure how to play Dungeons and Dragons. So for those uninitiated like myself, what is Dungeons and Dragons? Uh, to How is it a board game? Is it a card game? What? How can you basically describe it without thinking of me that this is the perhaps dumbest person I've ever spoken to? Not at all. I get that question a lot. And it's none of the above. Okay. Uh, there are parts and parcels to it that you mentioned, like cards and dice and, and other things that are part of a traditional strategy game. But in the end, it's a game that takes place in your mind. Uh, in part, it's role-playing. So you as a player, think of it as a video game, right? When you go in and create your own avatar for a video game, you're creating that character that you want to play. So whether it's a Madden football character or a warrior that's going in to fight in one of the you know the the many games that are there you create that character and over a period of time you level up and as you level up your character gains more experience and they gain more powers and they gain more in my case magic uh, as part of that and then you play uh in the theater of your mind instead of there being a board oftentimes you're requiring the uh the uh, the, the players to map something that you're describing to them and nowadays they've got you know, plenty of places where you can go and download uh, software that'll create maps for you and things like that. Back in the day, we were using graph paper and, you know, and pencils and stuff like that to to, to fill things in. It was old school. Uh, but the game is played by a dungeon master or a storyteller, basically setting a, an adventure for this party of party adventurers to, to go on and hopefully they survive it. And if they do, their characters are rewarded with wealth and power and all the kind of things you do when you when you win. Um the difference is it doesn't end at the end of the night. You know, you could play a and d campaign for several years. Like the one I'm involved in now has been going on for almost two years. The one I was going on before that was going on for a little over two years. Uh, and so it just depends on what you like to play and how long you want to, to play. Then if your characters live, you could play them in perpetuity. Um, but, you know, the game is played out up here and it allows you to roll dice when your character is doing things to see if you succeed or fail. In some instances, you have cards that you can play that represent spells or actions that you can take. And in other cases, you know, you're just telling the dungeon master, this is what my character is doing. And they tell you what happens as a consequence. Okay. Um, so thank you for making that a little clearer to me and to some of our listeners uh, who may have not had the pleasure. Is Would you describe it as more of a game where you can learn the rules and you can get better over time? Is it strictly a creative pursuit? Again, is it all of those things? Is it none of those things? Well, it's all of those things, right? So you get better with every game that you play. And when you learn what spells work and which ones don't and what scenarios in which they work and if they work better under certain circumstances, it's just something that you you fumble through as a as a novice player. And then as you get better... Um, you know what kind of spells or kind of character you want to build. And sometimes you even get away from building the strongest and toughest character. Sometimes you just want to play a certain character. 
um, because that that role playing aspect of it is just fun, right? So you can be someone that you're not uh, and do it in a way that you have this group shared delusion with five, six, seven of your closest friends. You know, and I've even teased my my wife will uh, will make fun out of us when we get together for the holidays or a picnic or whatever, and we're all sitting around talking about a Dungeons and Dragon experience like it was real. And all of our wives and, and kids are looking at us like, what are you, you know, this doesn't exist. You guys know that, but it's, all, but it did, it existed for us. Right. And even though it was in the mind, and that's why it's different than just a, a card game. You'll remember, you know, if you want a pot or you lost a pot or whatever it is, and you get better at that. The same thing happens in Dungeons and Dragons. And there's been a number of iterations of it. I started with advanced Dungeons and Dragons, which was basically the first edition. And now it's up to the fifth edition on its way to the sixth edition. So it's been around for a long time. And, uh, just recently got repopularized over COVID when people were kind of shut in and didn't have much to do, you know, and it's really kind of taken off and and kind of, again, exploded uh, onto the scenes. And I've used the basis of many of my campaign adventures for my novels. So it's easy to translate some things that are, you know, battle tested, you know, and you, you know what the characters liked. Uh, and it's easy to then translate that into a story. So now I'm taking it from the spoken word and I'm putting it into the written word and sharing that with uh, folks in the hope that they enjoy it. And that makes, that makes a lot of sense, especially when you uh, have, have such a history of playing the game and having the ability to tell the stories and recount them later as, as if they really happened. I, I, I see, I see that picnic blank where you're talking with your friends and, and those not involved are kind of like, this is really happy again. But when it's, it seems like it's something that's so uh, kind of near and dear and that you're so invested in that you talk about it. It's, uh, it, it's it's quite a visual and um. oh, it's so nerdy. It's so nerdy. It's okay. I mean, like <laughs> go to my conventions for books, and you know, it is just a geekathon, right? Like, and it's okay because we're everybody there knows who you are, so you don't have to, you know, hide it from the. And and I think that you know, being a nerd these days is kind of popular. Uh, you know, it was popularized a lot by the success of Silicon Valley, uh, not the show, but the businesses uh, and a lot of those folks. Uh, you see that kind of being, you know, sexy in popular culture. So, you know, take advantage of it while we can. Well, our nerds are getting our 15 minutes. Well, whether we want to say nerds, whatever we want to use from the bio, from your books, you are clearly intelligent and you have quite a skill of writing. So even if, you know, as I said, this is not necessarily something that I would generally read. I enjoyed your writing style and you're good at it. How were you able to develop, develop that from, from a fourth grader to somebody who is putting out a you know group of novels uh, that obviously uh, appeal to a large audience and people want to read. Well, in part, it's, it's um, you know, I'm, I'm a voracious reader. So I've read, you know, some of the classics, like I mentioned Tolkien before, more contemporary authors like Martin with Lord of the, or with uh, Game of Thrones or Salvatore with the Dark Elf trilogy, you know, or even, you know, Margaret Weiss with her uh, Dragonlance Chronicles, like that kind of stuff. I, I read that and you, and you, you gain inspiration, you learn how to write better, how you write descriptively, especially in genre, right? The words that I would use in fantasy adventure are not the same words I'm going to use if I'm writing a suspense or a cozy mystery. just doesn't work that way. So in part, you, um, you know, you, you develop it by reading. And then also, you know, a talent. I've always had a talent for writing. I write, my day job is, you know, well, back in the day, my day job was being a, I was a defense lobbyist. You know, so my, I was in DC doing, defense and technology lobbying and i wrote every day but it was all nonfiction. you know sometimes it was legislation other times it was grants or contracts and in, in some cases it was speeches 
you know, so the, the part that I had to develop over time was dialogue and pacing, you know, and things that you, you like subconsciously recognize when you're reading a good novel, like, oh, this is really good. But then when you're writing it, you can't rush certain things. Like you can't rush romance. You can't rush tension. And you kind of have to let things build over time. People like that and they respond to that. And so in, in some cases, it was it was self-taught. In other cases, I've got a great team around me. My publisher, Gwen Gaddis over at, you know, uh, Dragon Moon Press and and Phil Athens, who is is my uh, my editor and Dane Cobain, my other editor. I you know, got one for copy and one for development. And they are all very successful in their own right. And to have them there as sideline coaches telling me, you know, where I need to improve. And as long as you keep an open mind to it and don't, you know, you could take constructive criticism. Well, I think you, anybody can become a good author. So sitting in my seat, I've had the ability to speak with many excellent authors and, you know, even a step further, people who do amazing things in their profession. And what often seems to be a common refrain is I'm surrounded by good folks, editors, publishers, team uh, that helps me, you know, get to a better place, provides that feedback. I take it. And with the idea that I'm looking to do better tomorrow than, than I have done today. And that, you know, as you say, that's, that's kind of the picture that uh, comes to mind. Um, I, I guess with, with that is, is having such, I would assume a passionate fan base. Does it ever feel like, uh, you are, are writing for a certain audience and that they, there is an expected, an expected outcome or based on other, other, other past experiences that the, the expectations are one thing and that if you wanted to kind of veer from what would be the expected story that that can be difficult or a, a confrontation with with your a creative team or, or how i mean I, i'm rambling now at this point but I, I guess is there is there a formula that you find that is 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 common within the genre in general or is every every piece something that you know this is my story and I'm going to kind of take it where I want, where it should go uh, based on my past experiences. And sometimes it might be a little different than what my audience is expecting. Yeah. So it's all of the above that's in there, right? It starts out with the basic concept of the genre in which you're writing. And there is an expectation by readers that they're going to want to see a cover that appeals to them. They're going to want to read a blurb that's going to attract them into buying the book. And then when they get into it, you want to have that big moment in the beginning that punches them in the face that says, I got to keep turning the page and the page and the page, right? However, there are shades of the genre too. So there's epic fantasy in which I write, uh, which has, you know, the, the term epic really focuses on things that are uh, a little longer. So my average book size is maybe 500 pages. Um, and you're also creating a history and a future within that realm, your world building in a way that, um, you know, people can learn in the same way they did from Tolkien and, and Martin about Westeros or Middle Earth. And there were things that had happened a thousand years ago, which puts Jon Snow or or Frodo or Bilbo in the situation they're in right now, right? And they might not have had any control over it. They were just born into it and it happens, right? And so some things like that are pretty common uh, in, in, my, uh, in my genre. And then there are other types of it too. There's high fantasy, which deals with uh, different kinds of, you know, uh, like true to life cultures, like fake creatures and, you know, demons and devils. There's dark fantasy, which gets a little, little darker and sometimes gets a little more crazy uh, with the kind of stuff you do. There's sword and sorcery, which is 
a lot of swords, not a lot of sorcery, kind of like Conan the Barbarian. And your fan base falls into the big genre, but your real close fan base is really in one one or two of those bands, you know, that they like to read this kind of stuff. So you have to write for them, you know, and what their expectation is, in most cases, is sort of a Western, you know, European civilization brought from medieval or the Renaissance times with magic and world building around it. You know, that's what Tolkien did. He was the granddaddy of them all. And so that sort of set the benchmark for us all. And you see it in every novel of today. Now, that's not saying that you can't see it in other cultures. We see a lot of fantasy these days um, in the Middle East. We've seen it in with uh, Asian cultures. You also see, you know, things that have, um, you know, migrated away into, you know, graphic novels and anime that are all sort of, you know, fantasy based. And so you just have to find your lane and write towards that. Um, and your fans come, your readership grows. And, you know, it's, you know, I, I think that's the way you keep them, you, you keep them in tuned. And, and I'd like to do a little curveball. Like I have, I'm a big sci-fi guy, right? And even though I write in fantasy, which is this medieval culture that's out there, I'd like to introduce new technologies every now and then uh, that give the the uh, the good guys an advantage, kind of like cue for James Bond. You know, he's got that pen with the acid in it. You know, and you didn't expect that. And all of a sudden he's using it at the right time at the right place uh, because Q had given it from the beginning of the movie. You know, that kind of stuff. I like to, to you know, and I think that satisfies my appetite for sci-fi writing within a fantasy genre. And I think that most fantasy um, readers also are sci-fi readers. So, that you know, it also kind of, it's an homage to them. Thank you for an excellent answer to my very poorly worded question. So I appreciate that. Um, no worries. <laughs> you mentioned having a, a day job where you were writing nonfiction, and that was beneficial in the, to help your writing skills. Uh, also, being a voracious reader helps to to write better, obviously. Um, is there other things that are not as common or not as you'd think of as ways to improve writing for somebody out there who's looking to uh, to improve either creative writing or the writing in general? So, yes, reading, writing in other forms, uh, play, uh, role-playing games, anything else that you'd recommend that may not be common sense? Yeah, so I, I would recommend a few things. So first thing is, is if you want to be a writer, uh, take a class, you know, iron sharpens iron. And I took a class at a community college and there were about 14 or 15 of us uh, at the class and everybody reads everybody else's work and you spend three hours once a week over the semester, you know, critiquing everybody else and you're reading other people's stuff that's outside i was the only fantasy writer in my genre right so you get you catch on to things from other readers that are writers that they're asking questions about to me that might be very straightforward like i get it just because i read the genre to them they had no idea what it was and i'll give you an example of one i i had used the term uh sorcerer's familiar uh to describe one of my characters animals that he has the ability to to see through and kind of control. No one in the class knew what a familiar was. Everybody that reads fantasy knows what a familiar is, or, you know, it's kind of like the, it has sort of like a Wiccan background to it. So I would suggest something like that though it kickstarted. And it doesn't have to be a community college. It could be just a, you know, local writers group that meets at a, a Panera once a month and, and shares uh, work with one another. Uh, and also the other thing I would do is, is send it to beta readers, find people that you trust that know your, your, your topic know your genre 
and send it to them and expect hard constructive criticism. Like if I sent this to my mom, she's going to say, oh, yeah, of course, this is great. And she wouldn't have any idea what was going on, right? But if you send it to other people to read your stuff and have read your stuff or writers in your stuff, uh, and they come back and say, well, pacing's off or dialogue's off or there's a hole in the story here. Or, I don't get what this means. And you need to develop a spell system or this isn't unique enough. That makes you a better writer. You then start to pick out things, you know, after you've done it several times that you can learn from. And the last thing I, I suggest to everybody is, you know, muscle memory. You know, it's like when you miss going to the gym, your body tells you you're fat that day, you know, because you just didn't hit the bike or you didn't hit the weights. You just feel like you're off and your body's telling you that. Same thing with writing. If you go weeks without writing, you're going, it's, it's you know, there's going to be an atrophy there. So even if you're just planning, you know, something that's, you know, an hour worth of you sitting down and writing outlines for the next chapter, or you get, you know, seven sentences done, at least you did it and you're forming a habit that becomes a practice and that makes it better. And then you'll pick up on things too once you go through edits. Like I always tell people, don't edit your own stuff. Make sure you get it to other people. And when they edit it, you'll see things that you don't see. I mean, believe me, when I wrote my first manuscript, I was like, oh, there's not going to be any holes in this. <laughs> you know, four manuscripts later, you're like, oh, yeah, I see what, and you learn as you go. And so having people that have been there and done it for years, pointing you in the right direction is invaluable to your growth as an author. And I would suggest those few things. Uh, that's really helpful. Uh, really great uh, advice, as well as this kind of the story that illustrates that. Just a couple of quick follow-ups. Did you have, especially with the manuscript, was it difficult at any point to accept that feedback? Or is that kind of always built into your personality that uh, these people are trying to help me and that's why they're telling me these things, not that I'm I'm bad or this was not a good work product? Yeah, well, you know, I, I personally have a thick skin. You know, my day job for many years was working in politics. So you have to have a thick skin or else you get chewed up and spit out. So for me, accepting constructive criticism in a way from professionals who had been there before me, it's just learning. It's like Daniel Sun and Mr. Miyagi, right? Wax on, wax off, paint the fence, sand the floor. You go through that stuff and, um, you know, you have to learn it and you don't understand always what they're driving at. Like my first manuscript, my editor came back and he literally drew a line and said, this is where your first story should end. Cut off the last two chapters, push them into book two. This is where it needs to end. It needs to end in this punch in your face. And it's like, oh my God, I want to read more. Where's the next one? I was just writing it to kind of finish out the story and give it some logical, you know, you know, you know tie it up a little bit, you know, better button it up. Uh, and he was like, no, 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 no. And I was like, ah, but I don't know if I agree. And he's like, trust me. And he was right. You know, and if I wouldn't have taken that advice, I wouldn't have written a better story. And my second book is clearly better than my first. And my third book is clearly better than my second. And you just get better at writing and there's less and less errors and, and, and things you learn to catch as you're reading it or rereading it uh, before you submit it. And you just have to keep an open mind and a thick skin. Excellent advice. That's kind of my second follow-up there. Getting the feedback from readers, from what we call beta audience, is there ever a point where it's difficult to then please every individual and you get to a point said, Hey, I'm, I don't say the expert here, but this is what I do. And, I, and I'm going to stick with this or kind of knowing in your gut. It's like, yes, you're telling me this, but I'm going to do this anyway. And how do you know when you get there? If you do. 
So there's a couple of ways. Uh, the first is the easiest to see and the hardest to overcome, which is passion from the reader. Uh, you know, I've had readers come up to me and say, please don't kill this character. He or she is my favorite character, and I don't want them to go away. And you know they're telling you that based on the fact that they've identified with that character very well. And they'll tell you why, and then you can't say, oh, it's like, oops, they're already, yeah, I'm already two books ahead of you, and they're dead. But, you know, but you learn from that, right? And you see that maybe you can drag on, uh, you know, the, those folks, and you don't have to you know, be so Game of Thrones about it where everybody, somebody important dies at the end of every every season. Um, and there's also a, a readership that I think, um, you know, there's expectations that they want to see. They don't, they don't mind tropes. So in my books, you know, I have humans and elves, but my elves are different than those you would find as a Tolkien elf or those you would find in other, um, you know, other fantasy novels like for Renara. Those elves are different uh than than mine Janara series you know so you create your own stuff and you world build around that and then you can't have everything exactly what you're doing you kind of create your own villains and you create your own monsters it's doing research about those things and you you when people read it especially your beta readers sometimes they like it and sometimes they hate it and when you when they hate it that's just as important for you to pick up on because you want to know why and sometimes it's a good hate where it's like i hate that character or that son of a bitch you know, and you're like, aha, all right, I got, I'm, I'm onto this. I'm writing that character well. In other cases, they're just like, they tell you they're bored with a character or they, where it really hits home is like, well, I skimmed through that chapter. That means you got to rewrite that chapter. Sorry about my dog in the background. No, no problem. That, but he's you're just, right. He's a little lonely. Yeah. <laughs> the indifference there is, is the one thing you want to avoid that if it has passion on either of the polls, like I love or hate this character, it's written well. It's like, eh, I can barely get through it. It's like, okay, that's much worse than, than you hating. Yeah, any all sorts of indifference is the worst. Um, this is going to go back to my level of basic questions, but where you are world building and everything, you know, you're not, nothing is haphazard. Everything has a purpose and it, it corresponds kind of one-to-one to either in uh, Dungeons and Dragons in just in general. Are there any keys out there to um, kind of, a homepage of this refers to this or, or this is, does that exist? Or is that for a, a novice slash uh, beginner like myself? And that's ridiculous to ask. No, no, no. Actually, that's a great question because it exists for two reasons. One, there are folks that are reading it that have never played Dungeons and Dragons and wouldn't know what that is. Or sometimes in Epic fantasy, you have, you have a, have a tendency to have multiple point of view characters and you also have a tendency to have a lot of characters. Um, and so the idea behind that is you're seeing from multiple points of view, you know, a story that's unfolding. And sometimes you're seeing it through the villain's eyes. Other times you're seeing it through the hero's eyes. Other times you're seeing it for, through a very important character's eyes that reveals something that you wouldn't have seen about a more important character somewhere else. And even if they, you know, that, that point of view only happens once in the entire saga, that's okay. You're, you're. You're giving uh, a point of view from someone other than people they've been reading. And and some people like that. Some people don't. Uh, but I, I honestly enjoy that. But what I've done is I've created a website that people can refer to that has a family tree, a map of the realm, uh, sigils and coats of arms for all the, the noble families. You know, in this upcoming book, I've got something that describes sort of the hierarchy of the Cathedral of the Watchful Eye, which is an integral part of books three and four. Um, and you know, I, I think that 
you know, those kind of things, even though they, they might seem like a pro help, uh, especially if folks don't know your realm, like there's like, we can go see a, a Tolkien movie or read a graphic novel and read the Hobbit. And you've got a general sense of what's going on. Mine's brand new. Your mind hasn't been around for a hundred years. Right. So you got to, you got to jump in and sometimes you need a, a reference guide or a glossary to go back to. Thank thank you for that. Um, very helpful. Yeah. Um, we talked a little bit before hitting record that you have a book coming out in, in May. We are now in the middle of March. As you've done this a couple times before being pretty close to book being available, are you excited? Are you nervous? What do you feel like? Are you still getting feedback? Is it, I'm assuming it's too late for changes. What, what is going on in your mind? And are you, I'm sure you're better prepared than you were for your first book, but would you say that uh, uh, you're, you're ready to go and there's no nerves? Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm not a nervous person by nature. You know, I work, I, I own a number of businesses uh, in my private life and I treat my authorship as an entrepreneurial uh, experience, it's a business. And so oftentimes, you know, I look at it as I do marketing, I do promotion, I look, use social media to get in front of people. And, you know, for me, these are common things that I do for my, my other practices. Here, uh, it's something that I'm learning to do on the fly with some help with some really good people uh, that have kind of coached me along from there. But, you know, I, I think I found a, a nice pace. There's a cadence to the books coming out there once every six months, which is pretty good for epic fantasy novels. You know, if you go back and look at some fantasy novels, it takes multiple years to get out the next one. You know, for, for me, you know, oh, this yeah. is, you know, my practicing a rapid release, which is a term in the business that, you know, you don't want to lose the attention of your most loyal readership because they don't have the next thing to read. So you want to make sure that that's there, but I think you also reach out to them in other ways. So, you know, I, I look at me as the, the brand and my books as the product. And so when I go to a convention or a bookstore or a library, or I speak on a podcast or the radio, I'm putting, you know, my product in the hands of new consumers, you know, and I, and I think for them uh, to appreciate what I've done, some of them might read it just because of like the interview, right. They might look like one woman said they bought, she bought the book because of the cover, right. Like she liked the cover. And I was like, all right, it's cool. But for me, you know, book three, I almost, I will be more excited about book four, which closes the saga. You know, that'll be the final book in the series. And I'm in the midst of writing that. And it is 100% action. Like if there's downtime, it's for a half a chapter. It is so much fun to write. Uh, and so I, I, you know, I had to treat this book as, this is a little bit of a bridge to the end, but it solves a lot of mysteries uh, so that everybody knows what the setup's going to be for the, for the final confrontation of all the big bad evil guys versus the heroes. Uh, and then the last book is bang, everybody goes as celebrity death, right? So like we've, we've got those things coming up. Uh, so I'm excited to get it out because it's a continuation, um, but not nervous about it. You know, I think that, you know, my readership has come along through the first two and needs to grow and I think it'll do the same for three and four. Well, I was planning to change gears and ask a different question here, but with that answer, I feel like I must follow up. Um, literature, film, where there's multiple stories that build on each other. In you, in your style, in your writing, did you have the <coughs> last chapter, the end of book four in mind? And when you started, did that develop <coughs> over time or how, what did that look like? 
Yeah, so I have a tendency to write backward to forward. So I, this is what the last epic battle is going to be. And then I go back and write parts of it and string it together in an outline and then break it up into books and then write backwards to forwards in each of the books. I know it's a weird sort of reverse engineer. Maybe it's my left-handedness. I don't know. Um, but like, that's the way I write. But I also, I also think as someone that describes himself as a planner or a plotter, it's important for me with all the details you have in an epic fantasy realm, not to let anything slip off the table where someone's going to say, ah, oh, you dropped it here. You misnamed the house or you forgot about this and how did this wind up? So for me, writing backward to forward helps me make sure that everything's tied in. And then when I'm erasing things off my whiteboard, I know they're already in the book in the places where I want them. So I already knew the ending. I knew the beginning and the end before I knew any of the rest. And I wrote backwards. Um, and But what I did was basically do book one, obviously, first to get that done. But I knew where I had the outlines for all three uh, or all four when I started writing book one. And that, that's a fascinating answer, especially since you tie it to the planning piece to make sure that everything corresponds, everything uh, is is accounted for properly. Because if my mind first went to as a good business principle, because uh, you've mentioned that you have multiple businesses as well, that uh, a lot of times you're reverse engineering from a problem to you know, a service, a product, like here's where I want to solve. Here's the uh, audience. Here's the consumer who needs this. How can I get it into their hands? How can I give them what they want and then build from there? Uh, so that's what I thought. But you're right. It, I would assume it comes from both of those things. So uh, it makes a ton of sense. Uh, yeah, somehow, I think it's a nice little blend there. Somehow we are already at time. I could easily fire questions at you for the next hour, which uh, I will not. And I appreciate you uh, oh, taking no my questions and, and answering them uh, candidly and uh, not laughing at me openly. So thank you for that. Um, I will post to, uh, to links to the books that are out. And uh, where is the best place for our listeners to connect with you, learn more, uh, find out anything else that they're interested in? Yeah, sure. You, My website's jvhilliard.com. You can also find me at, at jvhilliardbooks on Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube and Instagram, or just jvhilliard on Facebook or Discord. Um, books are available pretty much ubiquitously. If you like audio, you know, go to any of the 20 distributors that distribute audiobooks. You'll find it there. Same thing for ebooks and paperbacks. You know, you can, if you're an Amazon person, go use your Amazon Prime and get it delivered in the mail the next day if you're you know someone that wants to download it and have it on your kindle or your you know uh your electronic device of choice uh, yeah. you can find it in in all those places and of course you know if you want to find a little bit more about my publisher you can go to dragonmoonpress.com and buy it there i know i said last question but i need to ask then do you have a favorite format in which you read are you e-reader are you paper audio Ah, oh, man, you're talking about a guy that worked in a bookstore in a library. I, <laughs> I, I am old school. I like the smell of books. I like the idea of having something in my hand. Now, I do travel a lot, so I've taken on the habit of audiobooks, which at the beginning I thought was a cheat. But, you know, in the in truth, people are in all different stages of their life, right? You know, they've got kids, work, you know, soccer practice, whatever. And sometimes it's not convenient to have a book, but you could pop in your AirPods and, you know, listen to a chapter or two between things or, you know, you know, you know, Bluetooth in the car. So I've gotten over my disdain for them and embraced it and now actually enjoy it. So, um, you know, that's, that's something that I've, uh, I've embraced over the last couple of years. Noted. Good answer. Um, I guess that just finally wrapping up when you are not in this world, building other worlds, 
what do you do to either relax, ease your mind for fun? It, I'm sure this is fun uh, for you in, in many different ways, but how about just to kind of uh, do something different? What, what would you say is the activity that you turn to? You know, it's funny you ask that because uh, this is my escapism. You know, like my day job was difficult for many years, right? It's something that's full of realism. And for me, this was a form of escaping to entertainment, you know? So writing is something I enjoy doing. Um, obviously, I've turned it into a profession. Uh, but also, you know, I also, I own a, uh, a company called Draft 412, which is a Pittsburgh-based um, NFL, Major League Baseball, and NHL e-magazine, which focuses on, you know, the the drafts for those uh, those three entities because those are the three professional teams they have there. And I'm looking to expand that in other places. Um, I'm one of those guys who don't sleep a lot. And for me, you know, sitting on a beach doesn't work. Uh, so, you know, for me, I'm just wondering why I'm wasting my time sitting on the beach. Uh, and other people look at it as like, this is the place you should be spending your time. Um, so I, I never criticize others, but I understand I have some faults and that's one of them. I, uh, I do enjoy the, the work. And, but if you make it fun, like this is, it's not really work. It's, it's entertainment. There you go. I couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, there's, I will disagree with you about sitting on the beach, but that is a conversation <laughs> for a different day. Uh, JV, this was a blast. Thank you for taking the time and I uh, look forward to doing it again. Thank you, sir. Pleasure having you. Thank you. 